Another great episode of Red Sea Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you hear, please go to our website, redsearadio.org, and donate to our apostolate, or even become a member of our Immaculata Recurring Gift Society and keep us on the air. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Good morning. It is Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, as always, we have a great show ahead for you. In our second part of the show today, I'm going to have a conversation with Carl Keating. He is the founder and senior fellow at Catholic Answers, and we're going to talk about his new book, 1054 and all that. Uh, It's a... Light look at the history of the Catholic Church, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, his brief and humorous take on this. But before we get into that, I want to welcome everyone listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn Bryan College Station, and welcome to our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM Lorena Waco, and also our listeners in Palestine on KINF. 107.9 FM. Uh, we're live this morning, so if you would like to give us a call, give, uh, feel free to give us a call on 85-LOVE-RED-C. That's 855-683-7332. I'm also joined in the studio this morning by our president, uh, Dennis Maka. And, um, good morning, and, Deacon Mike. Good morning, and he is trying to run the board and uh, have a conversation with me and get in touch with everybody that he needs to get in touch with. I've got two ears, and as one of my favorite songs goes, I just need two brains. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a song. I'll have to play it for you after the, after the and, show. And uh, we're also joined on the uh, phone by Deacon Robin Waters. Uh, Deacon Robin, how are you this morning? I'm great, Deacon Mike. How are you? I am doing well. Now, um, you had a couple of things that you wanted to talk to us about, about what's going on in the Waco area. What have you got for yeah, us? Just, well, things are really getting busy as uh, spring approaches and Easter. Uh, of course, we have a lot of different parishes that are having fish fries every Friday. Two specifically that we're promoting up here is uh, St. Philip's out in China Spring and uh, St. Louis in Waco. Uh, there's, I'm sure there's several others that I may be unaware of. If, if your parish is having a weekly fish fry, uh, give me a call at 254-749-4937, or you can go to my, to our website, redsearadio.org, and find my phone number there, and I'd be glad to, to help uh, get, get a good turnout for your, your uh, fish fries as well at different parishes. Um, some other things going on, St. Jerome's is having a Lenten retreat this Saturday from 9 to noon. Uh, it's just a great time to uh, you know, to pray, to, to listen, to be with others, and just place our trust in God during this Lenten season and just give all of our anxieties and fears over to Him. And it's a free event, um, but they would like to know who was coming. And so to register, you go to eventbrite.com. That's eventbrite.com, and uh, yeah, 
participate with those folks in their uh, Lenten retreat. They'll be glad to have you. Uh, also, a couple other things. Uh, there is registration going on right now for an ACT retreat that's going to take place uh, March the 23rd through the 26th. It is uh, put on by the uh, Acts of the Holy Spirit here in Waco, which is a combination of St. Louis, St. Jerome's, Sacred Heart, and St. Philip. And uh, this is a Spanish-speaking men's retreat. So if you're a if you're a person that is a Spanish speaker, this would be a great thing to do during Lent to to draw closer to the Lord. Anytime you can go on an act retreat, uh, if you haven't already done that, please consider it because the Holy Spirit is is there alive and and working overtime there. Uh, you can check out the. Uh, uh, to, to be a part of that one, I'll give you a contact information. Delfino Perez Jr. is the director of the retreat, and his number is 254-349-5164. And you'll also hear this on a, on, a, on Red Sea Radio, so if you tune in regularly, you'll get that number over and over. So those are a few things going on in our, going on in our area. Well, Lent is a busy time, and um, I think, you know, Sometimes that busyness interferes with our preparation for Easter, so it's always uh, helpful to have opportunities like an Acts retreat, like a uh, uh, day of reflection to help us get into the proper state of mind for that. So Absolutely. thank you for that, Robin. You're welcome. Um, speaking of getting in the right state of mind, especially our spiritual state, um, the parishes in most of our areas are beginning to offer the Lenten penance services so that we can mm -hmm. refresh our souls as well as our uh, hearts. And um, Dennis, you had the dates and times for the Palestine area. Mm -hmm. Sacred Heart Ch Catholic Church in Palestine is having five days of confessions in a row from Monday, March 20th through Friday, March 24th. The first two days will be from 12 to 1 in the chapel. And the third, the third, fourth, and fifth days are from 5 to 7 p.m. in the church. So yeah, be sure to go to one of those days from Monday, March 20th through um, actually Saturday, March 25th from 4 to 5 p.m. in the church as well. So uh, those six days in a row, you can go to confession in Palestine at Sacred Heart Catholic Church. That's awful convenient. Mm -hmm. Got to go, folks. Right. No excuse. Now, in the Bryan College Station area, we also have numerous penance services coming up. The first one coming up uh, is on March 2nd at 4.30 p.m. at St. Anthony Parish uh, in downtown Bryan. On March 8th at 7 p.m., St. Mary's Catholic Center is having their penance service on March 9th at 7 at St. Mary Parish in Bremont, March 16th at 6.30 at St. Francis in Franklin, March 23rd at 6.30 at St. Mary Our Lady of Lourdes in Caldwell, March 24th at 6.30 at Santa Teresa in Bryan, and March 28th at 7 p.m., St. Mary Parish in Hearn. And your last chance for a penance service in Bryan College Station is March 29th at 10.30 and at 6, 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. 
at St. Joseph's, but it's going to be at Christ the Good Shepherd Chapel, which is by the high school on Coulter. So plenty of opportunities, and um, I probably will have to go twice, but... (laughs) That never hurts. Never hurts. (laughs) And the Waco Deanery is supposed to publish their dates tomorrow, and so we should have that on the air in the next couple of days, uh, and we'll put those on the air in some spots as well. And there's one thing I'd like to mention concerning that. As he said, we'll have that on the air as soon as we get the dates. But um, if anyone really wants to go to confession at a, and it to be very convenient, one of the things that uh, Father Timothy and Father John do at our parish here in West at St. Mary's Church of the Assumption is at every daily Mass, after Mass, they have confessions available. Yep. So if you really need to go, uh, just check the, uh, the website for St. Mary's Assumption Parish in West. And you can come up, and I know that Father John or Father Timothy would be would be glad to uh, welcome you into the sacrament. That is also very, very nice of uh, the priests there to allow people to do that. Very good. Thank you, Deacon Robin. And um, since we're on the topic of penance, sure. Uh, it might be interesting to note that uh, the church is revising a lot of their texts of sacraments. Uh, we've already revised the order of holy matrimony, which used to be the rite of marriage. Uh, and uh, the latest one is the order of reconciliation, which has gone into effect as of Ash Wednesday. It, it was encouraging priests to use the new formula. And the only thing that's really changed as far as going to confession is the priest's uh, prayer of absolution. It has been revised, and um, so it may sound slightly different when you go to confession and Father gives you absolution. Now, as I said, it began uh, Ash Wednesday. It will be universally... uh, used on Divine Mercy Sunday. So by that time, everyone should be familiar with that prayer of absolution, and um, the priest will be expected to use that. Now, the interesting thing is that, um, well, first of, um, whichever prayer of absolution your priest uses, it's still a valid confession. So even if Father, after Divine Mercy Sunday, accidentally uses the old version, it's still a valid confession. But uh, uh, also, uh, they revised the scripture readings that go along with both communal penance services and the ones you might want to read preparing for individual confessions. But um, also, in addition to that, there are additional options for the act of contrition. And I thought, uh, let me read the uh, primary change to it. Um, It is, oh my God, I am sorry and repent with all my heart for all the wrong I have done and for the good I have failed to do, because by sinning I have offended you who are all good and worthy to be loved above all things. I firmly resolve with the help of your grace to do penance, to sin no more, and to avoid the occasions of sin." through the merits of the passion of our Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord have mercy. But uh, not only is that 
now the new option, and you're free to still continue using the old ones. I'm like, I think, two centuries behind on my active contrition. <laughs> Me too. And uh, But all of them are valid, but there are numerous options uh, also, so you really can't get it wrong. And uh, might behoove us to go ahead and... Uh, uh, take a look at some of the, those. Uh, the diocese has them on their website. Uh, you can read them, and um, some of them are absolutely beautiful. Some of them are extremely brief. So if you really can't remember anything, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Hmm. And so, uh, but again, uh, these are just the options, um, but um, uh, they are listed on the um diocesan website just uh, on the search box type in penance and it'll tell you all about this and uh, give you the list of the new act of contrition also uh, has the new uh, prayer of absolution there that you can read it and um, but uh, what I find interesting is that um, every so often the church finds it necessary to take a look at uh, how we celebrate the sacraments and uh, times change, language changes. And um, so the church every so often revises things. Uh, we had a major change back in 2011 when a large part of the responses from the congregation during mass mm -hmm. were revised um, mostly in part uh, because um, the language that was used to translate the original Latin was a little looser than the Vatican would have liked. So a lot of the changes went back to the original Latin. And uh, the fascinating thing of that is that the, one of the main reasons that was done is because there are Catholic uh, areas in the world that do not translate from Latin to their language. They translate their mass from English to their language. And so the Vatican wanted to make sure that the English reflected the Latin so that when somebody translates from English to their language, that it's as close to the Latin as it can possibly get. Of course, when you translate something, you can't ever get it exactly the same way. But Anyway, the order of reconciliation is going into effect this Lent. So, uh, as I promised, we're going to, on the other side, talk to Carl Keating about his new book, 1054, and all that. And I hope everybody will stay tuned for that after our short break. All this I can, And we are back. Uh, you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Bovey. And as promised, we're going to be speaking with Carl Keening, the founder and senior fellow at Catholic Answers. And we're going to be talking about his book, 1054 and All That, A Lighthearted History of the Catholic Church. Carl, how are you doing this morning? 
Dick and Mike, I am doing well. I hope you can say the same. I can say the same, especially after reading your book. <laughs> well, uh, I suppose that if someone is a little under the weather, reading it might boost the spirits a bit. At least that would be something I hope. Laughter is the best medicine. So they say. <laughs> now, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, 1054 and all that, uh, especially what made you decide to write this book? Well, actually, there were two impulses, one old, one a little more recent. Uh, the older one was thinking back on my first book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, which came out 35 years ago now. And when I wrote that, I had two audiences in mind, first the Catholic audience, of course, but also I wanted Protestants to read it. And uh, to get the Catholic point across, I realized that I could not rely on papal decrees or conciliar documents because they wouldn't accept the authority of either one. So I based my book on scripture, common sense, and early Christian history. So I've always had a great regard for the teaching power of the history of the church. Because if you go back, especially in the early years, you what you see there is really what you see now. Just nowadays, it's, it's blossomed a bit. So that was sort of laid the groundwork for my interest in writing a book on history. And then more recently, I recalled uh, one of my favorite books and a favorite book of probably millions of people around the world, at least in the English-speaking world. Uh, and that was a book published in 1931 in London called 1066 and all that. And it was a kind of spoof history of England. And it had co-authors, uh, W.C. Seller and R.J. Yateman. And uh, what they were producing is what they imagined the average Englishman of their time still remembered of what little English history he was taught. And of course, over the years, it gets mixed up a bit in the memory. So they begin the book saying, history is not what you thought, it's what you can remember. And they go from there. It's a very funny book. It's been in print for 92 years. And so think about that. Think about my desire to do a, a history book. That would be a kind of introduction to the history of the church for the average Catholic and for others. I decided to take a cue from Seller and Yateman and would write a book that has a similar title. In their book, 1066 and all that, the 1066 referred to the year of the Norman invasion of England. So a very important point in English history. My book is 1054 and all that. And the 1054 refers to the year when the Eastern Orthodox churches broke off from the Church of Rome. Now, I want to read uh, from the uh, reviews. I want to read the one from uh, Dr. Peter Kraft. It said, what would it feel like to read 2,000 years of church history in 140 pages written by Monty Python or the editors of The Onion, the successor to Punch? Like 100 giggles and belly laughs. Like this book. Get it and read it before the thought police outlaw the remnants of permissible humor and history. And I thought that just perfectly described your book and the tone of it. Well, you know, I have to say I have to agree with Peter, but I have the highest respect for him and all the more now that he gave such a nice uh, endorsement to my book. Uh, his endorsement and 13 others appear 
on the opening few pages of the book. And uh, the last one is by an author, a Catholic author you might not be so familiar with, uh, Jeff Minnick. Uh, but he quotes, Jeff does, he quotes G.K. Chesterton, who said, it is the test of a good religion whether you can joke about it. And uh, that's what I do in 1054 and all that. But I don't joke about it in the same kind of way as Seller and Yateman joked about England and its history in 1066 and all that. I would characterize their style of humor as sort of verbal slapstick. Mine, I think, is different. It's, it's more droll. I, I try to use wit and um, sort of some undertones of implication to, to bring out a humorous aspect. So I don't think I have any, or at least not too many, authentically goofy elements in the book. But I do think I have a lot of humor that will make a person think about the actual solid history that's in the book. It's not a, a long book, 140 pages. But all the history uh, I tried to make as accurate as I could, I tried to summarize uh, events and people and places and doctrines and so on in a very short space for each one. I have 111 separate segments rather than chapters to the book. And each segment can be anywhere from 250 words to 650 words. So they're all short. But my goal in each one was to uh, be extremely accurate on the dates, the people, the quotations, what was done, but also to as the subtitle says, give a lighthearted approach to all of that. One of the examples of that lightheartedness is uh, when you're talking about uh, St. Paul and you write, the first great Christian missionary was Paul of Tarsus. His actual name had been Saul, but he changed it under an early version of the Witness Protection Program. Yeah, and then I go on to explain that uh, he had trouble convincing his friends to accompany him on his many voyages because he had an unfortunate habit of getting shipwrecked. <laughs> and, and that's true. You know, yes. we get that out of scripture. And uh, this is a, Paul and Peter in Rome is the title of this section. It takes only one page. Uh, and at the end, I'm talking about the two of them who are, have been captured in Rome uh, and ultimately, of course, uh, martyred. And I say, at length, the jailers tired of having the two apostles as their charges. Peter was crucified upside down and Paul lost his head. They were buried in different places. Paul was buried outside the walls of Rome and Peter was buried smack dab beneath the center line of the basilica that bears his name. So there you have a substantial anachronism. Because obviously the basilica wasn't built until many centuries later. But uh, I put a little twist in there to get the reader, well, first to get the reader's attention, but also to get the reader to think about what the situation actually was back then. And then opposite that page, we have one of uh, the full page line drawings that were done by a professional artist uh, in a kind of caricature format. And there we see Paul uh, sitting on a, a bit of a rock in the ocean with a sunken boat in the background. I, uh, I love that picture because it captures St. Paul's bad, uh, fortune, uh, you know, perfectly, him sitting there, you know, on this rock, and it looks like, you know, a shipwreck, and he's 
there by himself, and it just uh, it really captured that perfectly. Well, you know, I was lucky in getting uh, a referral to what I think is a very fine caricatures uh, named Kirk Kress. He is a friend of a fellow I used to work with long ago, and uh, he recently retired, semi-retired, but he's willing to illustrate this book, and he, re- he illustrated made 13 illustrations for the inside, black and white, and three of them were redone in color and were joined together on the cover of the book. The inside of the book is all black and white. But I think uh, he was able to bring out in each of the drawings uh, the kind of features regarding the persons involved that I was highlighting in the text. And, and I think it worked out very well. Yes, and I think uh, the tone of the pictures uh, matches so exact with the tone of your writing that, you know, they're not sacrilegious, they're just humorous. Yeah, I mean, here's one of, you know, St. Patrick, and I mentioned that uh, he was said to have uh, uh, driven the snakes out of Ireland, and so the the picture of him shows him in his, you know, bishop's garb, holding a crozier, and shooing along in front of them a couple dozen snakes. Okay, uh, It's a cute picture. Uh, I also mentioned that uh, uh, it's not known just where he drove them, but I say there are six municipalities in the United States named after Patrick, and each one is noted for high incidence of reptiles. <laughs> that may not be a coincidence. <laughs> So little things like that. Now, I'm presuming that, of course, the reader will realize that he did not drive the snakes over to the United States. Uh, Wherever they went, they didn't come this far. But uh, there are, in fact, six cities in the U.S. named for him. And so it's my imagination that brings up whether they have a large reptile population. But I put that in there, uh, and I think that um, readers will understand that that's not that part's not to be taken literally. Uh, the part regarding the U.S. and snakes, but the rest of what I write about Patrick is, you know, entirely just history. Yes. I want to remind our listeners we're talking with uh, Carl Keating about his book Ten Fifty Four and all that, a lighthearted history of the Catholic Church. Now you divide the book up into five hundred year segments and. As short as a book is, even 500 years, is a lot of ground to cover. How did you choose what to touch on in your segments? You know, it was not easy. I I went through several lengthy scholarly history books of the church that I have and um, paginated through them. And what I wanted to do is to have roughly the same number of episodes in each 500-year period. And then among those, I started to select out ones that I thought were interesting. Uh, some would be well-known incidents, I think, to most readers. Others would be of rather obscure things. So, uh, you know, of the people who've read the book so far and have gotten back to me, many of them are already well-educated in Catholic history. But each one seems to have said, oh, I learned something new. I hadn't heard about that. So some of the incidents I report on, some of the people, uh, are fairly obscure, but very interesting and, and educational. And others, of course, are are well-known, even though maybe uh, the normal reader will have uh, 
not remembered a particular thing about you know, such and so. So as I was going through it, then I simply selected people that at that moment uh, I felt like writing about or incidents or, for example, heresies or, or um, political machinations that affected the church during the Middle Ages or what have you. Whatever just hit my fancy at the time. Uh, as you mentioned, the book is only 140 pages. It can be read in one evening. And th there's no attempt here to be offering a complete history of the Catholic Church. The book would have to be 10 times that long just to give a substantial intro to the history of the church. So uh, necessarily, I have to leave out far more than I can put in. And for example, of the 15 men who were counted in Scripture as apostles, I mentioned only three, Peter, Paul, and John. Uh, now, one good thing about that is that if this book does well and I have a sequel, I've still got more apostles to talk about. Now, there's a good plan. Yeah. Now, one thing that uh, I noticed and in how you pick these things, um, there's, you know, things that everybody knows, and then there's some things that you put in there that, you know, make you think. For instance, your comparison to uh, between the papacy and the emperors of the Roman uh, Empire and the fact that at one point there were 19 claimants to the throne of the emperor. And at most, we've only had three um, anti-popes at one time. And uh, you made the point that, you know, most of the emperors uh, did not die in their sleep, whereas most of the popes did. Uh, and so, you know, that both humorous but uh, really an in, uh, important contrast to the change from the Roman Empire to the Holy Roman Empire. Yes, you know, and I, and I, I mentioned that. And, and what came to me as I was writing about this particular period of the history of the Roman Empire, as I realized that in its years up to about two, two, uh, between 251 and 284, there were so many emperors coming and going. They, they didn't last very long. Uh, they almost all got murdered or else they died on the battlefield. And uh, as I was writing that down, uh, it occurred to me that, you know, there's kind of parallel later on in the church. And if there's one point, we had three claimants to the papal throne that was in the Middle Ages. And I mentioned that later in the book at more length. But I put that in this, in this particular early segment because I did want to show uh, or at least to suggest uh, two things. One, there was a kind of maybe arm's length parallel between uh, governance of the Roman Empire and later of the church. Uh, but also I want to point out that Christianity was a progress over what came before. And so in this small way, I, I comparing the 19 emperors who didn't die in their beds, and then much later, uh, when we had three claimants to the papal throne, and all the popes of that period did die in their beds, uh, I said that you know this was considered progress. So uh, I wanted to leave the reader with a sense throughout the book that there's a kind of trajectory that the church has been on uh, from its founding up to our own time. Uh, one of the things, uh, you know, you touched on a few of the heresies, um, certainly not all of them, 
But one of the most important heresies, of course, Arianism, uh, which led to the uh, Council of Nicaea. And uh, that's probably one of the most important pieces of church history because of, you know, the heresy going on at the time and the decision running counter to what you would have expected given the um, widespread use uh, or um, belief in Arianism. Yeah, Arianism was the heresy named after, of course, a priest named Arius, that held that Christ did not have two natures, but just one. He was uh, human only, not divine, but he was the best of all creatures. And the heresy was so popular that in the fourth century and the late third century, uh, a majority of the bishops in the world were Arian heretics. Uh, but the first ecumenical council at Nicaea, in what's now Turkey, was called in 325 to deal with this and to define uh, Christ's status regarding his nature or natures. And, and the council came up with a definitive decision. But Arianism then persisted. It didn't disappear after the council. It was going on over a matter of several centuries. And it's a, a particularly important heresy because actually it's come back in our own time in a different guise, doesn't use that name. But there's so many people who nowadays will define themselves as Christians, but say that Christ was simply a very good man and a good example, but he wasn't actually God. I read a commentary that said that almost all the heresies that the church fought over its years have in one form or uh, another come back into existence in our modern age. You know, that's true. Later on in the book, I mentioned one called Pelagianism. And Pelagius was an early writer who taught that, uh, in essence, that there really was an original sin and that you as an individual, could by your own efforts lead a perfect life. Uh, you didn't need the extraneous help of grace and so forth. Well, Platonism has come back in the modern time also, because there, there was in the 19th century, I mentioned a, a French writer named Coet, who's not remembered now, nowadays at all, but except a sentence he had, a phrase which, Every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. Well, that doesn't really go along very well with the sense of original sin and the fact of falling and repentance and grace and so on. And, but that's the kind of attitude that we see pretty popular today, where a lot of people are not really aware that we're all sinners and need to realize that and then try to do something about it. But if you live a life where you don't even think that you sin at all, or that sin doesn't exist, then you're improving yourself in whatever sense that means on your own, by your own efforts. And that's the kind of thing that Pelagius taught so many centuries ago. So yes, you know, heresies do come back, different names, some different attributes maybe, but they do come back. Now I have a question. Uh, the quote you have uh, when you're writing about uh, St. Gregory, the Pope uh, St. Gregory the Great, he cleaned up and recognized, uh, reorganized many things in the church. He was the first successful church administrator. He also may have been the last. Have you gotten a letter from Rome yet? Uh, I haven't gotten a letter from anybody on that. <laughs> but 
but I'm not. I don't. I'm sure I won't get from one from Rome because I think it's sort of obvious that <laughs> in recent times we haven't had the most ideal administration in terms of efficiency and so on. Uh, and, and that's you know this is true as far back as you as you want to see. So when I say that Gregory the Great was a, maybe the last successful administrator, you know, obviously tongue in cheek, but it, I think it makes a person, the reader thinking about whether that might have a, a true aspect to it. Uh, it. You know, we we can think of maybe some, at one time, some business organizations that were famed for their organizational efficiency, but it's a little hard to ever put that title onto the church. I want to remind our readers, we're talking with uh, Carl Keating about his uh, book, uh, 1054, uh, and a humorous look at uh, the history of the Catholic Church. One of the things uh, that I noted was that not only is your text humorous, but your footnotes are also. Uh, how did you decide where to put those footnotes rather than incorporating the material in the text? Well, a lot of it depends on what I would call comedic timing. There are many places in the book where I would want a bit of a pause before the punchline is given. And when you're forced to go down to a footnote on the page, you've got that one second break or something that seems to help. Uh, And, or, uh, there are times when a footnote will be entirely extraneous to the actual content of the segment I'm talking about, maybe a, a saint or some event or what have you. But something in the discussion reminded me of what might be an almost an unrelated topic, and so I put that in the footnote. Uh, and sometimes I just, I just want to poke some fun. For example, early on in the book, I have a segment about Justin Martyr, who was the first Catholic apologist. I mentioned his background as a pagan and what he did and so on. But before that, I say, uh, not everyone nowadays knows the meaning of the term Catholic apologist. Here it is. A Catholic apologist is someone who goes around the country apologizing for being a Catholic. And then there's a footnote. The footnote reads, this is a joke. If you didn't realize that at once, stop reading here. You won't understand the rest of this book. Okay. So I do those kinds of things. And, uh, uh, sometimes I use a footnote to refer back to some earlier uh, discussion I had about some other character uh, and make a connection between the person I'm talking about now and the, the one I talked about some pages before. And uh, one of the examples of that is when you're talking about the filioque clause, and you bring it up earlier in the book and then revisit it when you're talking about you know uh, the actual split and. Uh, for our listeners, would you explain the controversy of the filioque? Well, filioque is Latin for and the son. And the controversy was whether the second person of the Trinity proceeds from the Father alone, excuse me, or whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone or from the Father and the Son. And uh, originally, uh, when the creed that we say at Mass, was written, the filioque line wasn't in there. 
and it was at, at a later council. And in between those two times, there was rising up already uh, tensions between the Church of the West and the Church of the East that ultimately would result in 1054 in the split. And uh, so the distinction here that I, what I say here is, is uh, everybody acknowledges that the Son proceeds from the Father. In the East, they said the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father only, and the West was saying from the Father and the Son. And I go on to say, well, it seems to me that if the Son proceeds from the Father only, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father only, then they proceed in the same way, and they would be duplicative, and the Trinity would be reduced to a duo and not a trio, right? So um, that particular controversy was key for a number of centuries until finally, as I say, the split occurred in 1054. When we uh, you talk about the split in uh, 1054, uh, the segment's not that long, considering the uh, enormity of the event. Um, how can uh, go ahead? Yeah, you know that it's it, this. This introduces the uh, third segment of the book, a third 500 year segment, and it's the first I have in in the years that go from. Uh, 1,000 to 1,500, and I call it the segment 1054, Year of Disaster. And actually, it's one of the longest. It might actually be the longest single segment in the book, but it's only about a page and a half in all. And uh, so at the end, I, I, I discussed it here, the, the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople uh, and, you know, what was going on there and, and a number of, of issues, and it resulted in his being excommunicated by some papal legates whom the Pope of the time had sent out to Constantinople to try to fix things up. And I said that you know, this made 1054 a fatal year, a fateful year. Uh, from this sad affair, we have the ditty, East is East and West is West, and never the twain shall meet which is coined by a medieval writer named Kipling. Well, here I bought a couple things. Kipling, of course, is not a medieval writer. He's a 19th century British writer. But in his East is East and West is West, he was referring to Britain versus China and Japan and the, the Orient, you know. But I borrow from him uh, and because his famous line, East is East and West is West, and never the twain shall meet, has largely you know, could be used to explain the unfortunate rift between the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Churches. One interesting point that uh, you raised is the actual excommunication was issued after the death of the Pope, who had sent the legates there in the first place. So there's no way of really knowing if the Pope had approved of this or just authorized them if necessary. Yes, he authorized them to do this, so the, so the excommunication took, so to speak. Uh, but of course, he had died three months before that. Uh, and, and I happen to mention, again, tongue-in-cheek, that in those days, international communication was slow, Alexander Graham Bell not having been born yet. Uh, so uh, Pope Leo of, of the time um, you know, gave his legates 
uh, authority to do this. And they were in Constantinople several months trying to work with the authorities there and without luck. Now, in your uh, discussion on the Inquisition, there's something in there that uh, most people probably never heard before. Uh, you quote Pope Alexander III as saying, it is better to absolve the guilty than to attack innocent life by an excessive severity. This was in the 12th century, and this sounds distinctly like our legal position as far as um, innocent until uh, proven guilty. You know, it very much is. People tend to think of the inquisitorial process in the Middle Ages as being extremely cruel and unfair and so on. But actually, uh, people who were accused of crimes, if they could be somehow connected to religious matters, would appeal to have their cases tried by the church courts, the inquisitorial courts, rather than the civil courts, because the church courts actually were much fairer. For example, and this is one thing I mentioned here, that unlike in civil courts, you could not be convicted of heresy by the Inquisition, unless on the testimony of at least two witnesses. And that very principle was carried over into the American Constitution centuries later. The Constitution provides that no one can be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of at least two witnesses. So the uh, contrary to popular belief, the inquisitorial situation was actually much more advanced in our legal sense than any of the civil courts of the time. Uh, I find it interesting that people would be so surprised that, you know, given the view of the Inquisition through uh, history, that it's actually the rules of the Inquisition that are so much part of the framework of our legal system. That's right. Uh, but, you know, there's the, the consistent sense the Reformation, consistent uh, storytelling about the Catholic Church and its earlier history, uh, much of it pure fable, and much of the rest of it simply misconstrued. And that's come down to our own times. So people very innocently, you know, have this sense of say what the Inquisition was or how stupid the people of the medieval times were. And uh, that's largely bogus. It's largely a, a, a grotesque misunderstanding that's been foisted on them. All the more reason, then, to be reading Catholic history, whether in the thick scholarly book or in a lighthearted book like 1054 and all that. Given a choice, I would uh, first read uh, 1054 and all that, because uh, it is certainly a easy read and uh, gives you an awful lot of information. Well, that's what I was hoping. You know, again, it's not in any sense a complete history. It doesn't intend to be. What I hope will happen to people who read it uh, is that they'll end up wanting to read more Catholic history and will go elsewhere for that. Uh, but that they'll get interested in it because I think history is, is one of the most sobering disciplines of all, especially Catholic history. So much falls into place if you understand of where we've been, how we got through it and how we got to the present situations. Uh, speaking of the uh, 1500s, uh, would you talk a little bit about your take on Martin Luther in your book? Uh, Luther, I start by saying, 
was not an unscrupulous monk. He was a scrupulous monk. In fact, he was over-scrupulous. This was his personal problem. For example, he would go to confession and would leave the confessional not being sure whether he was actually sorry enough to have his sins forgiven. Every modern confessor you know, has people who come in with the same problem. Uh, and Luther was never able to resolve that personally and ended up uh, developing his own alternate theology in certain ways. And uh, it was it was a great pity because you know he could have done much for the church had he not uh, you know been unable had he not been able to uh, you know see what his own problem was and how to go about dealing with it. But he ended up uh, among other things uh, sifting through the Bible and setting aside things that he didn't like. And I mentioned, for example, that he very much would have liked to boot from the New Testament the Epistle of James because that epistle indicates that works have something to do, in addition to faith, with one's salvation. And that was contrary to the ideas that Luther was developing. So I have a little segment uh, on Luther in the book. Now, one of the other uh, controversial figures that you talk about is uh, Galileo. And uh, every time I, I talk about Galileo, you know, First part of the thing I point out is that he was not the first one to suggest that uh, the Earth was not the center of the universe. Uh, Copernicus has done that a century before, and uh, this is something you point out in your book too. Would you talk a little bit about the Galileo controversy as it's seen in the modern world and as it really happened? Yeah, you know, we often see the Galileo case, as it's called pointed to as proof that the Catholic Church has been opposed to science. But actually, it's the only case involving a squabble between the Church and a scientist of any sort that anybody ever points to. It's the only one in history. And it comes down basically to, to this. As you say, Copernicus, who was a Polish astronomer, a century before Galileo's time, had posited what we would call, what we call the Copernican theory, which was that the Earth was not the center of the universe or the solar system, but the sun was, and that the planets went around the sun. Uh, Galileo, using his newly invented telescope, was able to come to that same kind of conclusion. Uh, the difference between the two men is that uh, Galileo was not at all diplomatic in the way he tried to present his findings. Copernicus was a scientist and simply stuck to science. He said, this is what my observations lead me to think about the science. And he actually was supported by the church leadership. One of the cardinals, in fact, underwrote from his own pocket Copernicus's studies. But Galileo uh, decided that wasn't enough for himself. He decided to be an interpreter of Scripture also. And he arrogated to himself the interpretation of the relevant passages of Scripture, especially in the, the book of Genesis. That's not where he was qualified. He wasn't a biblical exegete. And that got him into trouble with those in Rome who were biblical exegetes. And then he made it worse by writing them uh, a document, sort of a sto story that explained his position, something like a play where there were different characters speaking. And he made the big mistake of putting uh, the words of the Pope of the time into the mouth of the character that in those common in those years were commonly was called the fool of the story, 
a guy named Simplicio, which means simpleton. Well, naturally, that did not endear him to the Pope or to anybody else. And so he was brought up uh, by the Inquisition. He was given a mild punishment, which was basically house arrest. He lived in a nice place and, and had to stay there. He never went to jail. Uh, but that incident has been blown out of proportion in later centuries by those opposed to the church on other grounds. And therefore, they have expanded it to where the church is anti-science. Now, the book is a history book, but reading it, you know, it still falls into that category of uh, Catholic apologetics, which is one of your strong suits. How would you relate this book to the notion of apologetics? Well, I mentioned earlier in our uh, talk that in my first book, I realized I needed to use history, Catholic history, as an apologetical tool. And that's what I do here in 1054 and all that. Uh, when you read the book, I think you come away seeing that one of the things I'm doing is proving the Catholic case by sharing Catholic history. I do it in a funny way in many, many places, but I spell out what really has happened and what implications are. And I think it's very important for Catholics of all stripes to learn Catholic history, to get into it as far as they can, because by doing that, you understand how the church has gotten to its, shall we say, perfected understanding of its dogmas and doctrines, and how all these things relate to one another, and how, especially in early centuries, there were squabbles about how to understand the various teachings, and then how the Church resolved all of those things uh, to make our doctrinal teaching a coherent whole. So uh, 1054 and all that is apologetical without being an overtly an, uh, a book of apologetics. Let me put it that way. Now, we've got about three minutes left, uh, and I want to make sure that our listeners know where they can get a copy of the book. Is it in print already? Oh, yes. Matter of fact, you can get it through bookstores such as Barnes & Noble, but I'd recommend the easiest way is Amazon, and it appears in four versions. Uh, paperback, hardcover, an ebook for a Kindle or other device, and also as an audio book. So you can, whichever way you like, to read or listen to a book, it's available at Amazon. And the title of it again is 1054 and All That, A Lighthearted History of the Catholic Church. And of course, the author is Carl Keating. Now, in the last couple of minutes we have here uh, in the wrap-up, would you just give us a reason briefly why our listeners should want to buy this book? And I think after listening to the talk, they already want to. Well, I think a couple of things. One, it's a fun read, and we all need some lighthearted elements in our lives. Second, you learn actual Catholic history, uh, and you learn how different things fall together. Uh, third, you come away with a sense of uh, a timeline, and you can see how one heresy or teaching or personage is related to another one further down the timeline. So I think all these things work together. And I think, uh, I, I won't call this a good book for Lenten reading in the sense of it's not penitential, 
But I think one of the things we do need to do in Lent is to learn more about who we are, who our ancestors have been in the faith, and how all that affects our own situation, what we are, and what we ought to be. And I think one important factor in this is the fact that as Catholics, we so often allow the secular world to tell us who we are. And That's right. We need to listen to ourselves, and we've got a great story. We just need to read it. Yes, and one of the good ways to do that is, in a short 140 pages, with 1054 and all that, a lighthearted history of the Catholic Church. Uh, Carl, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, I really enjoyed the book. I hope our listeners, in listening to our conversation, are going to want to buy this book and um, share it with other people. Uh, you know, buy a couple of copies and give them away to uh, Catholic friends. Uh, you know, I hope they do. And all I would ask of them is, is if they like the book, please leave a short review at Amazon. But if they don't like the book, I ask that they go out and treat themselves to dinner at their favorite restaurant. Thank everybody for tuning in today. Next week will be another episode of the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Until then, when considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up. 